Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Activist Lawyer. It's just me today, Sarah, in the studio in Granite Exchange at the lovely Granite Podcast Studio. Unfortunately, our Jack is no longer with us at the moment. He's left um, for a little holiday, well, a 12-month holiday off to Australia and other countries but we hope to hear from him um, on his journeys and he will hopefully tune in. I'm sure everybody will miss him. So just me today but I'm very excited to be joined by Kez Siddiqui. Hello Kez. Hi Sarah. Kez joins me um, via Zoom unfortunately because he's um, in London and just by way of introduction I know some um, fellow practitioners um, in immigration and asylum might be familiar with Kez and certainly will be familiar with some of his cases. Kez Siddiqui is a solicitor and head of public law at Barnes Harold and Dyer Solicitors. He specialises in public law, human rights and immigration law. A former refugee himself Kez is passionate for fighting for people's human rights, particularly the most vulnerable in our society, and has been holding public bodies accountable for breaching those rights. He frequently challenges public bodies, mainly the Secretary of State for the Home Department at the High Court. His work includes challenging the Rwanda policy and representing Afghan interpreters who were refused under the Arab Settlement Scheme to the UK. His work has taken him um, most recently as well on many appearances with LBC, ITV News, News24 and Al Jazeera's The Take, covering a lot of his most recent high profile cases. Welcome again and thank you so much for joining us, Kez. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I've been following your work quite a lot. Obviously, it's quite high profile in terms of plans, the UK government's plans for removals or um, processing asylum claims in Rwanda, Mm -hmm. which is still quite shocking that that is still a thing and we're still talking about it. And of course, you're you're in the thick of it with your work. But before we get into your core practice, uh, would you mind sharing with our listeners just a little bit about yourself and maybe how you came into this work and and how it's going? Well, it depends how long do you have. with <laughs> all but, day. It's a Friday. <laughs> well, um, I mean, my journey started um, before I was born. My parents are originally from Afghanistan. Um, and during the Cold War, uh, they had to move to Pakistan um, because the situation in Afghanistan was dire. So um, they moved to Pakistan where I was born. I was three years old when we moved to Holland. My father moved there before we did, and he sought asylum there on the basis of his political opinion because he was politically active. And he was granted and then invited us, I presume, uh, through family reunion, but I'm not entirely sure. And um, so myself, my mother and my siblings, we went to Holland, um, where unfortunately my parents divorced and uh, which also led to me be- wanting to become a lawyer actually because my father was very abusive and um, he um, wasn't a very good person um, and um, my mother divorced him and so we went through the whole system and my mother took custody of us and um, so we lived in Holland for a while and then when I was 14 years old we moved to the UK and yeah and I've been living here ever since so I mean, my journey basically, um, as I said, even before I was born, I was pushed into the world of refugees and mm. uh, I've experienced it myself. I've lived in a, a refugee camp myself in Holland and I know what, how 
uh, how how it's like to live there and how helpless and ho- hopeless uh, you feel uh, in those situations. Now, um, in relation to my parents' divorce, it was a very um, uh, it, it, it was a very shocking sort of um, sort of I mean it was it was shocking for me to see as, as a child going through all of that and uh, the trauma of course my mother as well and um, but the solicitors that we had um, it, it, it was quite refreshing to see how much they fought for my mum okay. uh, for her rights even though she was just a refugee um, in a foreign country where she didn't speak the language, uh, she didn't know the culture or anything like that. So I was I was in awe by the solicitors who dealt with the case uh, in my mother's divorce uh, matter. And um, so that just instilled a sort of uh, passion for me to also fight. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, I just knew that um, uh, I was only four or five years old, but I just knew that, oh, they're very cool, you know. Yeah. Um, I would want to do what they're doing, um, so I, I, I that, that just that thought uh, sat with me for a while. Uh, I went through uh, secondary school in the UK, and then um, I studied uh, law at the university. I mean, the passion sort of dwindled throughout the way, but uh, mm-hmm. it just um, at university I, I, I was just like, okay, let me just try to study law. Maybe uh, I will try to find a passion. For it again, so mm-hmm. I studied law, and um, I I didn't enjoy it to be honest. Yeah. I, I didn't enjoy studying law, and um, but in my third year, I did um, do a a module called pro bono, and we were fighting for the uh, injustices against a person um, uh, in America, and we were trying to exonerate him. Mm-hmm. And that was quite interesting. That that really was like, okay, this is something that's that's very interesting. I, w- I want to get into this, and um, and then, but but still, I wasn't quite sure. I I, I basically so I, I completed my law degree, and then obviously naturally, I I wanted to do my LPC. Um, so I did my LPC. So yeah, I mean, I graduated. Um, I mean, unlike others, I graduated with a two two. So I was I was like. Okay, um, this is this is not a great start, um, and I felt defeated. Um, I felt like um, I was a failure. I was like, okay, uh, this this is it. Uh, I can't do much with this mm-hmm. law degree because um, only you you can only do become a good lawyer if you get a two one or a first. Yeah. So um, I was just very defeated, and um, I felt like okay, I'm just going to do some. Um, um, some recruitment because at the time there were there were uh, some recruitment agents contacted me because I speak Dutch and German. Okay. They contacted me. They're like, okay, would you want? Would you be interested in this? I, I, I was thinking, okay, I'll go. I'll go into that. But uh, my mum was like, no, you should continue. This is your passion. Mm-hmm. Um, you remember your four or five year old cares. Uh, oh. Just just do the LPC. Just just see what what will happen. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. So um, I started the LPC. Following that, I started my first job, and um, during all of that, a lot happened as well. Um, and um, but but I still persevered and continued. Mm-hmm. And um, once I um, got my LPC, I started my first ever job as a criminal paralegal, yeah. um, and that was quite interesting, sitting in murder cases and 
rape mm-hmm. cases and things like that, speaking to uh, uh, to clients and uh, and hearing their stories. But still, I was I was this this is not what I want to do. I want to do more um, immigration related work. Mm-hmm. So I applied to Duncan Lewis, where I work, mm-hmm. and um, as an immigration paralegal, and um, I stayed there for a year and eight months. Uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and then I went on to do my training contract and now everything seems to have worked out. I mean, yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm, the type, I'm, a, I'm a prime example of someone who has learned to love what they do uh, over time. To, and yeah. yeah, yeah, as opposed to from the start. Uh, I mean, initially at the start as a child, yes. But, the seed was um, there as a child. And then I wonder, was it your mother really encouraging you in the background because she saw maybe when you were a child how, you know, impressed you were by, you know, the lawyers who had helped your mum and shown, you know, compassion and also worked very hard for her, as you said. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean the journey's any less difficult. Law is tough. And especially because you have to study a load of subjects that you've virtually no interest in whatsoever. Absolutely. <laughs> That's Absolutely. the nightmare about exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, definitely, I mean, uh, it was, I just needed to be navigated in, in, yeah. into the uh, area I wanted to practice in. I mean, uh, it, it was just, um, yeah, I've always had the passion for it, but I never knew what it was because a lot happened during that period of time as well where I wasn't sure yeah. what I wanted to do. And definitely the 2-2 that I had at university really, really um, beat me down and um, mm. it was it was difficult to rise back up. But I did, and um, and then I just realized that um, okay, this is something I want to do now. I've, I've actually, I actually enjoyed it, and I'm I'm the type of person who believes in uh, like you have to fight for your dreams. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I want to do something, I want to be the best at what I do. Yeah. So I just uh, worked double, triple, quadruple as hard as mm-hmm. um, and as other people, and I mean um, working very late at night, um, pushing myself to my limits. And I mean, it, it, it's worked out and, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's very rewarding to know that uh, the work that you put in yeah. uh, will, will uh, eventually come to fruition. So um, yeah. there's still hope out there, uh, basically, so that, that for the students that, that feel uh, that feel let down or um, have, have, don't, don't have the motivation yeah to stick at it and find an area that you really like and it's good that you can get practice in different areas to see what you like so you're working primarily I guess within immigration and human rights law in general being the head of public law at Barnes Harold and Dyer solicitors so I mean I know you've probably hundreds of different types of cases going on before we recorded here we had a little bit of cha- a chat about our work but I wanted to hone in on some of the cases that you've been working on recently which have garnered quite a lot of attention and are quite high profile because they relate to the Rwanda policy that most of our listeners I guess will be familiar with but I'm wondering Kez could you just maybe take us through a little bit of detail around what that in fact means for asylum seekers and refugees who are already in the UK. Um, well, uh, it, it's in relation to the Nationality Borders and Bills Act, um, which was uh, um, which received royal assent earlier this year. Um, so the policy basically 
what what the aim of it is to send individuals who have arrived illegally to the UK and uh, with a specific sort of focus on um, certain nationalities, um, such as Iran, uh, Sudan, uh, and and there were a few Albanian cases as well, uh, where the focus is more on them, uh, those nationalities where they want to remove those individuals to Rwanda um, or where their um, asylum claim or protection claim will be considered. And um, if they are granted, they will have to stay in that country. Right. So, uh, it, as you can tell, it's, it's just, uh, I mean, it's a ridiculous policy, yeah, to be honest, from my perspective. It's shocking. And they don't even, as far as I'm aware, they don't even have a criteria as such. But as you said, maybe there's a pattern or are they honing in on different nationalities? I did hear that there are some Syrians who had recently arrived in the UK who were potentially, um, you know, um, signalled for removal to Rwanda, which is also quite shocking. Um, Are they looking at men, young men? Are there families? Are there children involved here? Um, so, uh, at the moment, it seems to be the case that it's uh, single men okay. who have arrived to the UK illegally. Um, so, uh, um, I forgot to mention that the whole purpose from the Home Office's point of view is to uh, deter individuals from entering the UK illegally. Um, but there's, there's so much that goes in, into this. I mean, how uh, it, it, it's just the only way, I mean, the, the immigration rules themselves actually say that an individual can only claim asylum if they're in the UK. Yeah. So the the whole reason why they're asylum seekers and refugees is because they can't get here on a legal basis because the immigration rules are strict um, and they can't fulfill it. So yeah. the only way that they can come here is illegally and they're being punished for that. So it, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And to try and fit um, genuine or anybody claiming asylum refugees who are coming here into, you know, uh, a scheme. And let's just be honest, the schemes haven't really worked to date well. I know the Ukraine scheme has worked, but um, Afghanistan is one of the the schemes that you've been working on, the Afghan scheme too. I mean, horrendous to expect that these routes, legal routes, are the only way into a country to claim asylum. Um, so, yes, a deterrent, but... Um, everybody who enters the UK will be subject to that rule, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because uh, my client, uh, you have to also understand that most of these individuals, um, they travel with agents who have full yeah. control of their journey. So they don't even have a say in um, in, in how, uh, what countries they travel uh, uh, through or uh, in what, uh, what method. And they have traveled through these difficult journeys mm-hmm. to get here and where they have no control of the, over their journey. And uh, actually, my client, he um, was uh, trafficked in Turkey as well. Um, he was uh, he was abused and uh, by, the, by the traffickers. So they really broke him down mentally. And um, they yeah. took away his passports where they made him feel like he had no identity of, of, himself, of himself whatsoever. So that's what these agents I've seen do is break their psyche to mm-hmm. uh, really have control over them um, so that they don't escape from yeah. them uh, and that they get the money at, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So that's, 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 that's something that, that's not been taken into consideration. No, it and, hasn't. Uh, most, yeah, yeah. And my, my clients as well, before he was being put on the boat to come to the UK, um, 
one of the agents uh, actually pointed a gun at him and said, get on this boat or we're going to shoot you. So, I mean, yeah. that, that's that. So he, he obviously doesn't want to get shot. So he got in the boat and crossed, uh, crossed over to the UK and he was arrested. I mean, mm. to even have to deal with that trauma and then immediately being arrested and being taken to the detention centre is just too much. And no. they're not seeing it as a, from a human uh, perspective. No, and their focus is always on the traffickers. It's always on deterring the traffickers and we need to stop trafficking into the UK. But the victims of trafficking really haven't been considered at all here. And I have read just some of the reports following the first um, plane, um, some of the asylum seekers who were rounded up for the first flight, which was stopped at the 11th hour by the European Court of um, Human Rights back in June, wasn't it? Or in, in, the, in the summer. Two of them were my clients. Two were your clients. Well, yes. from I think one of the reports that was published in that had described so, um, and it highlighted some of the journeys that those um, asylum seekers and refugees had already been on. And I think some of them had crossed through Libya, suffered mm-hmm. severe torture there. So already on an absolutely harrowing, traumatic journey, get to the UK, are rounded up onto a plane knowing in their mind, they did not know what was happening essentially legally or what decision was going to, um, or the, the courts were going to arrive at. But the trauma on that plane that was suffered by those um, men, I guess, most of them were probably men at that point, was mm-hmm. is simply hard to believe. Um, you oh, know, in absolutely. Ter- yeah, and I, absolutely I read that yes. and I was absolutely shocked that they... Um, in the UK were treated like that. They were restrained forcibly, some of them. Some of them had expressed um, suicidal thoughts and wanted to kill themselves before they would ever get on the plane to go to Rwanda, which is just so Yeah, absolutely. So they they made that very clear. Uh, I mean, the flight was uh, going to take off on the 14th, was supposed to take off on the 14th of June. Mm -hmm. And... um, a couple of weeks before that, that's when we actually really started to focus on this case. And yeah. um, I was heavily involved in this. And um, the the team at Garden Court Chambers, uh, mm-hmm. they were absolutely amazing. They were available uh, um, yeah. around the clock. And uh, without them, I wouldn't have been able to do uh, to get the results that we that we did. And um, so what we did is we initially applied for um, in, in interim relief. Mm-hmm. And that we wanted to stop uh, our client being removed because we were uh, we were worried that he was a victim of trafficking. But um, we went on the 14th of June in the morning. We went to court, and there were uh, three other individuals in the same courtroom as us, and all of them were refused. All of them interim relief was refused. So we were thinking, okay, well, the flight is going to take off. We thought at that time that it was at 8:30 the flight was going to take off. Um, but we later learned that it was 10.30. And um, so we were like, okay, we have to move on. Um, and bear in mind that we barely had any sleep like yeah. uh, a couple of days before that in preparation for this hearing. So um, so we applied to the Court of Appeal. And then we found out that uh, Duncan Lewis's case, uh, their um, Rule 39 application to the European Court of Human Rights uh, was um, was granted. Okay. And... Um, so we, we made a similar application and then at, at nine o'clock we were at the Court of Appeal. Before that, I mean, it, it, it was just chaos, mm-hmm. absolute chaos preparing the application because you have to bear in mind that this usually in normal circumstances, mm-hmm. 
these applications you have to prepare you get weeks uh, yeah. to prepare for this application but we had a matter of minutes, minutes. or hours to yeah, do them absolutely um, yeah. so we had to work really fast and um, at the end of the other and uh, the client was, kept calling me what was happening so um, and then at 10 o'clock at night so half an hour before the fight was going to take off the judge at the court of appeal uh, the master of the roles um, I mean granted our application and okay. they they're, they're sort of uh, yeah yeah, that was a huge, a huge success, but it was only inter- it was only interim relief, wasn't it? So yeah, it was yeah, and exactly. I, I, but it was fantastic in terms of the media coverage on it around the flights were stopped, and of course all of the agencies um, as well that support um, you know support this case and work with asylum seekers and refugees and know their vulnerabilities who were horrified at the prospect of this celebrated this as a victory. But it was only one step. So obviously a huge amount of work for you and the team involved. Extremely exhausting, no doubt. It was a success. But what about your clients and the other um, people that were on that plane? How were they? How are they? So um, there, there were five individuals on, on the plane and um, two of them were my clients. And when I spoke to them afterwards, they said that... Um, they were treated horribly on the plane. Okay. Uh, they were restrained. Um, all of them were crying. Uh, they were shouting and screaming. And uh, because obviously they were being removed to a country where they had no connection to whatsoever. Uh, th- th- my client actually told me that he couldn't even point Rwanda on the map. No. Um, so he was being removed from the only source of, uh, of, of family that he had in the UK. Um, and being removed to a country where he had nobody and he didn't even know the country uh, um, on that level where he could actually uh, survive as a, yeah. as a human being. So um, he was he was restrained on the plane. He was crying. Uh, they refused to, like, um, the officers uh, didn't take anything. They closed the doors on them, uh, let them cry and everything like that. So... Wow. They, they didn't even try to assure them or uh, try to make them feel better about everything. So uh, they, were, they were treated like animals. And Absolutely. you can't do that. These people are, are people, you know, yeah. and um, they have feelings. They have been through so much. And uh, this is like a big step for them, even if they were to be removed to Rwanda. It, 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 it's, it's a horrible feeling to uh, be put through all of that, having all that trauma uh, having uh, suffered all that trauma, so th- th- there's a disconnect on on a human level, and um, it, it was just horrible to hear that from yeah. from my clients uh, that this is something that they had to go through just before uh, leaving to a country where they didn't they didn't know where where it was. Yeah. Um, so, but, but luckily that that didn't go ahead. But my client, I, I'll speak when I speak to him, he, he still tells me that like. He gets night- nightmares about sure. about that day on the on the plane, and it's it, it, he he says that it makes him really sad and upset having uh, when, when he thinks yeah. about that, and um, and it's still looming over them because uh, him and the others and let's be honest, it could be anybody if there's no criteria that's been published, any of these young men or older men or people who've just arrived are likely candidates for selection, which just must. Be, to Absolutely. live under that stress and anxiety 
after having been through, you know, a serious amount of trauma, I, I just can't imagine the cruelty that's been Absolutely. perpetrated on those and, people. And then, uh, but that's, that's something that uh, makes me realise why I do what I do, mm. uh, be an activist lawyer, to fight with these people, because we are their mouthpiece. We are, we are basically, uh, they can't express how they feel. They don't know the system, so we are there yeah. for them on their behalf so it makes it, it, it makes me fight for them even more yeah. for their rights because everyone does everyone has human rights and everyone's human rights should be respected yeah. um, so, absolutely uh, but it, it, it seems like uh, with the, with the immigrants and refugees it's just the, the, the human rights are being waived and it doesn't matter with them but no yeah. that's not the case they're also human um, so it, 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 it's very important for me to um, fight for them and to make their voice be heard. Yeah, despite how exhausting and tiring it is, um, you can certainly mm-hmm. see that you come from a place of real passion for it. And I'm sure the lawyers mm-hmm. there that supported you are the exact same. But aren't you just getting in the way of the government's plans? You're, you know, a pesky activist, lefty lawyer is what oh. you've probably been described as. So not everybody's going to be um, jumping around with joy about this, particularly because the government have come out and said that Rwanda is a safe country for these people yeah. to go to. And there's absolutely no reason why these lawyers should be getting in the way of their plans to do this. Absolutely um, astounding what their response and their defence has been to date. So um, we'll go back to that again in terms of context. But just you aren't finished here with your work on on this case and others. Mm-hmm. Can you bring us up to speed maybe with what um, has happened recently in terms of um, the High Court action around this? Yes. So um, this matter was listed for a hearing, for a five days hearing. Um, by the way, the, this this hearing is not just my client. Mm-hmm. It's a huge uh, group of uh, a cohort of okay. individuals in, in this matter. There's um, 18, 19 individuals who are being represented by uh, five uh, firms. And are those individuals um, people who've received notices that they will be removed? Notice of okay. intention, yes. Yeah. Notice of intention. So all of them have received uh, notice of intention. Uh, majority of them they uh, they got their their removal on the 14th of June cancelled. Uh, mm-hmm. It was only those five individuals um, who were on the plane, but still they were um, they were being considered uh, for removal to Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the hearing was listed on on the 5th of September, and um, we um, we went to court uh, for five days. We uh, the judges heard from uh, from our perspective. Uh, from the Home Office's uh, perspective as well. Uh, I mean, it was a huge case. I mm-hmm. mean, there was around 40, 50 barristers um, of, wow. on both sides. And uh, the courtroom was just filled. It was a sea of barristers. And um, so we, we went there and the, the, hearing, the hearing went ahead. But there is another element to the case as well, asylum aid uh, case. Asylum aid cases where um, they are just challenging the policy um, and uh, they don't have clients like individuals to represent like with our cases with the other 19 okay. individuals. So they're just literally um, challenging the, the Rwanda policy. The policy itself. Of, okay. Yeah. So that hearing has been listed for the 10th of October. Okay, the 10th uh, of October. Two oh, days. Soon. Yeah. 
for two days there, so it's, it, it's quite soon. And um, following that, the judges have, um, have, have said that they're going to make a decision on uh, on, on the judicial review uh, following that hearing. So after the 11th of October, any time after that, they, they'll make a decision. And I, I think they're going to make a quick decision. Uh, they probably have written up their, their decision already. They're yeah. just waiting to hear for, to, uh, for the 10th of October. And then following that, they're going to um, um, hand down judgment. And mm-hmm. obviously, it, it, it's, it's, it's quite natural that whatever happens, it's not going to be the end. Uh, we believe that um, if we win, the Home Office are going to challenge it. Yeah. If we lose, we're going to challenge it at the Court of okay. Appeal. So yeah. it's, it's, it's going to be a long process. It will be a long process, <laughs> but um, hugely impactful on hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and can I just ask, what is the core of the challenge in terms of, is, it, is, is the argument that uh, Rwanda is not a safe country? Is that the crux of the argument against the policy for the individuals that you're representing? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, there's, there's a, a lot of uh, challenges mm-hmm. within one challenge, but essentially the crux of, 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 uh, of our argument is that uh, Rwanda is not a safe country. And I mean, it's been backed up by the intervener in the case, which is the UNHCR. Um, and they are also essentially saying that Rwanda is not a safe country and that's not being taken on board. And uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, and answer your question, that, that, that yeah. is essentially what we are. And I mean, even aside from, I guess, you're knee deep in the legalities of everything and the process in terms of um, challenging this matter, but um, given it some context as well, I mean, you only have to think about not only is it clearly not a safe country to return Mm -hmm. asylum seekers or send asylum asylum seekers or refugees to have their cases processed, but practically speaking, I mean, Mm -hmm. how on earth is there a facility there? Um, in terms of, I even read about there's no funding in place for interpreters. There's no support in place for anybody. None of this has been set up. It seems to be some a handshake deal between Pretty Patel, the Rwandan government, millions of pounds of UK money exchanged, but nothing at all set up. And surely that has to have a level of consideration as well. Um, not only is the country completely unsuitable um, for many reasons, I mean, it completely cracks down on anybody politically, um, political oppress- uh, oppression against the regime there. LGBTQ plus people are, have, you know, live in fear there. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, significant reasons as to why it's not a safe country, but practically speaking, how is this going to work? And what if somebody has refused refugee status in Rwanda? What happens to them? Exactly. So there's, um, as I said, there's loads of challenges in just the one challenge. But uh, you have touched on the on the main points. I mean, uh, most of these people don't have, uh, won't have interpreters available to them. The accommodation is mm. in horrible conditions. Even though they have, um, uh, they have provided assurances to say that they are, will be looked after uh, this, that, and the other, but. Uh, from the research uh, that the UNHCR has done in this, uh, there are so many uh, um, issues with uh, with the assurances that they have given. Yeah. So, yeah, on a, on a practical level, it's 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 not possible. And um, but and to be quite honest, we never thought that it would take off the way it did because yeah. 
we just thought that if we presented the evidence to the Home Office, mm-hmm. they would actually back down. But it seems mm-hmm. that they're quite uh, they're quite in on this, and they what they want to see this through, and they're quite relentless. In that even sense. under so Suella Braverman, yeah. even under new leadership now. It doesn't seem to yeah. have changed. In fact, I might be wrong. I don't know, but it seems to be more of a hard line, which is worrying. Oh, yes, God. exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, it's 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 like, um, uh, yeah, it's just under Suella's rules. It's, it's going yeah. to be even worse, I think. So, um, but then again, this this is this is why we have people like us, activists, stories fighting yeah. for this, and yeah. um, it, it's important that we fight for human rights. Uh, because essentially, we even though we're fighting for other individuals, we are fighting for our rights as well. Exactly. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So I, I mean, we're doing ourselves a favor as well. So it's mm. it's really important that we get more people on board and um, and and to to yeah. basically uh, um, fight for our rights. I yeah. mean, to have more access lawyers. Absolutely. And I mean, anybody listening to you would be wholly inspired. I mean, I guess it's not an easy job, but you do get um, that sense of reward from your work that we'll talk about a little bit later towards the end. But I'm glad to see that your and your colleagues, I guess, as well, are determined you know, to see this through on behalf of those very vulnerable um, very worried individuals who've already been through enough to have to deal with this and it's just beggars belief that this still continues um, and the whole world looking in on this to see how the UK the UK mm-hmm. who prides itself in being a beacon for human rights and um, equality inclusive yeah is just um, going to uh, follow this through but we hope we wish you all the best of luck and your colleagues on this and of course um, your your clients as well we'll watch um, very closely but just on another point um, that you've been working on um, that we've kind of touched on a little bit here in our office is to do with very vulnerable Afghan asylum seekers mm-hmm. and refugees who seem to have been forgotten about um, when it comes to UK immigration policy. And I know you've had a little bit of success with some of your cases, if you want to have a, a, a chat about yeah. that. Um, so this um, uh, this these cases have a special place in my heart because obviously I'm Afghan myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, to be able to help individuals from my country, uh, it's it's a huge honor for me. Um, so whenever I have Afghan clients, I'm always honored to help, to, to uh, give back to my roots, so to mm-hmm. speak. And um, so, yeah, I mean, um, I've been helping, um, challenging the... Um, uh, the Ministry of the Secretary of State for Defence and Secretary of State for the Home Department uh, in relation to the uh, Afghan relocation and assistance policy, the Arab scheme. Mm-hmm. And um, these are individuals, majority of them are interpreters who um, were um, on the ground helping uh, the army and interpreting and uh, being a bridge between uh, the Taliban and, and, and then mm-hmm. uh, and the British forces. So I've been helping them with uh, challenging their refusals because the applications when they were submitted by these clients they were refused and they were not yeah. given any sort of um, reason for the refusal they just said that they are a uh, they have been refused on uh, security grounds with no context or background provided whatsoever as to how they came to that conclusion so obviously it's literally just one line nothing else so we took this on. Um, I had 
seven or eight uh, clients uh, last year referred to me and we issued judicial review proceedings. On all cases, the Home Office um, uh, uh, conceded and withdrew uh, their decisions, the original decision, and said that they will make a new decision within, uh, they said, two weeks, then it was four weeks, mm. then they kept delaying and delaying, and in the meantime, they were uh, amending their policy so that they could uh, they could actually apply it and refuse more people. Yeah, so off the that, that was the whole reason. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. That was that was the whole reason for the delay. And we were fuming. We were we said that you said two weeks ago, two months ago. Mm. So, um, but eventually they did uh, they did uh, make new decisions, um, and two of them actually got granted the okay. first time round. But the others, um, five or six of them, I can't remember the top of my head, they still got refused second mm. time round. And we waited two, two and a half months just to get the same answer that we had three months ago or when we issued this review. Exactly. So one line refusal mm. saying that they have been refused on security grounds with no contact for background providers. So we challenged it again. And on this occasion, um, the second time around, they actually, uh, uh, they, they also agreed to withdraw the decision and make new decisions. And uh, the new decisions on uh, three cases, I believe, uh, three, four cases, they were they were granted. So we were thinking, hold on, um, what was so different the second time round mm. that um, that we that wasn't considered the first time round? So we we were thinking that, uh, that uh, they hadn't considered the cases properly the first time round. Mm-hmm. So if we hadn't challenged uh, them the second time round, and we didn't stick around and persevere. Then the clients wouldn't have had the outcome that they that they had, which yeah. was a which was a grant of their visas. So there was there was something wrong in that sense. So uh, some internal issues that they that, that that they overlooked, and it just goes to show that that um, like the, the the home office and they're so careless, they're so um, inconsiderate of everything, and they. Even though they say that they're looking into this and uh, yeah. making investigations and everything like that, they're yeah. not. I mean, it's unnecessary. Um, and it also shows that those schemes are fundamentally flawed from the outset. And um, they still celebrate these schemes. If you look at their policy about these schemes for Afghan nationals that were lauded over whenever, um, you know, the, the tragedies and the crisis started to unfold, um, you know, earlier in the year, it... In practice, none of them worked. And you're Mm -hmm. just explaining in detail their problems that can arise. But without that persistence from you, you know, a legal team behind them, nothing would have happened to those people. So the fact that these schemes were advertised or marketed as, you know, providing assistance to those who helped the British forces, interpreters, and, you know, we look after them. And it had lots of political support, especially from people here in Northern Ireland as well, Mm -hmm. who haven't really supported any other immigration schemes, well, apart from Ukraine. But... Mm. on the ground and practically they're not working and we've had people who have been um who felt like they were accepted somewhat onto the scheme so they got past the first part maybe which was asking them for their id the details explaining what they do their family names and then they never heard from them again Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then we follow up on it and then an email an automated response comes saying yeah no the schemes are now closed or they're not opened up or they're yet to reopen and these people are sitting in Kabul thinking 
and hoping and praying that their case will soon be assessed. And then there's nothing. It's there's nothing. Absolutely. So it's Absolutely. just a, another example of a complete shambolic, um, you know, attempt to. I don't even know what they're what they're attempting and, to do. Yeah, and you know better than I do. I mean, so after the first refusal of the judicial review, uh, if you get a negative outcome, you have to consider whether there's any merit. So most practitioners, unfortunately, would hand them down because they would say that there's no merit mm-hmm. and the clients would be would be told no there's, there's nothing we yeah. can do or uh, we've done the judicial review process for you and there's unfortunately nothing we can do and they, that would be the end of it mm-hmm. um so uh, i mean if if that if that would have been the case then those people would have been left in danger in Kabul, uh fearing for their lives yeah. and all of my clients were in hiding um and they had to move about because neighbors were spying on them yeah and uh, being informant. So they were afraid of everyone. So uh, having to live like that for no. the rest of your life and being unable to leave the country is impossible to do. So it, it's really important to uh, persevere, uh, I believe, and, and to really fight well, uh, yeah. for the time. Good. But um, yeah, on, on, on another note, though, at the moment, I'm also going to be challenging the, so the, the clients that have been granted on the, on the Arab scene, uh, they're still not being relocated. So I've had um, two clients who were granted in February and March, and they're still in Kabul. So the FCDO is mm-hmm. being unresponsive. So we will be challenging the uh, unlawful delay and okay. ma- uh, making yeah. arrangements to bring them over, which is another challenge. Another and, challenge, uh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Which, and I've, I've got my other client who's got a hearing. Uh, so the two pending cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, uh, one of them ha- will have a hearing, uh, hopefully in November, uh, the Judicial Review hearing at the High Court. So that's still all in the cards. And, yeah. uh, mm. but yeah, so it's a never ending story. No, even it's if never you get ending. Positive outcome. Yeah. It's never ending. And, you know, you're doing absolutely um, groundbreaking work there as well. I'm sure it's exhausting, but rewarding. And I like that you've mentioned throughout, you've used the term activist lawyer quite proudly. And yeah. um, I mean, the title of this um, podcast, obviously, anyone listening, it's, it's activist lawyer. And it's for people like you and our other guests who, you know, work in very difficult circumstances. Let's be honest. It's not easy. Your job is certainly not yeah. easy. But we're trying to encourage people, you know, to consider uh, this type of work and really to use this as a platform to share your work with practitioners who maybe work in human rights, but not necessarily immigration and who have an interest. So we're hoping to build upon this pr- platform to share what people like you are doing and to spark an interest in people who maybe are considering that. And on that note, what advice, Kez, would you have for any of our listeners who are interested in getting into, I mean, you're doing the real nitty gritty of immigration and asylum law. I mean, you're you're stuck in there. (laughs) I've, um, um, as as I've said, I've I've been someone who who was interested and intrigued by the work that um, lawyers do and then that, that sort of that that spark just just spindled. So like um, it wasn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. But if I believe that if I had gone um, to more uh, events and uh, was listening to these podcasts well, back when I was at mm-hmm. university or something like that, then I would have actually uh, like the journey would have started earlier than, than you would have had more had. confidence, maybe just because absolutely sometimes yeah, you feel a little bit of isolated in law, especially if you're working in this area. So it's nice to know that others feel the same, I guess. Absolutely, and yeah. I, and I think you're doing a marvelous job at that. So 
to really um, to really spread the message to have mm-hmm. this podcast. And um, I wish that we had podcasts like this back when I was at yeah, university. Me too. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I mean, for the students, I would say to um, open your ears and, and uh, open your eyes to all of these opportunities that are out there for you. You are important. We need people like you. And the work that we are doing is not just uh, for, for this Iranian client or th- that Iraqi client. Mm-hmm. Essentially what it is, we're fighting for everyone, for humanity. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's really important Um to have a voice, especially in the current climate, where uh, the government is, is not what it seems to be, and um, to really hold them accountable for their sort of um, uh, flaws. Sure. And uh, we need people um, to uh, to carry on um, spreading the message. And um, I believe that you can only do that if you open your eyes and ears and be open to to this. And um, the work is very rewarding. It's very enjoyable as well. And at the same time, you're doing something for a good cause. Mm-hmm. So all of these factors have ultimately instilled a, a, a passion I can't describe. Um, and it, it, it's a passion that, uh, that has grown in me over time. Sure. Uh, it's not something I I, um, I had from the beginning, but it's something that I that, that has grown over time, and it, it's it's um, it's an exhilarating feeling to mm. actually do something uh, as, as a general for the for the whole country, which is to fight for people's human rights. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. I, as I said, I, I would just uh, give them advice to uh, take every opportunity to attend the, these sort of. Uh, to listen to these podcasts, attend events, mm-hmm. uh, speak to your professors, and um, and then hopefully we, we you can join the family. The family. I think that, that's just excellent advice for anybody listening. I, you're so right. I mean, I wish I had have been able to speak to practitioners and had more of a kind of a mm-hmm. clinical approach to legal education back back in my day because you don't have the confidence and it is very procedural as well. And you think, oh gosh, am I able to do this? And yeah. I go, so you're right. It, it is a family. And I know my fellow practitioners here, we all feel like a little mini family. It might be via WhatsApp, yeah. but without that support, you'd be completely <laughs> lost. So that's excellent advice and and very encouraging for people can, can, thinking about going into that that area of practice. So oh, I mean, you. it's just been an absolute pleasure, Kez, to talk to you today. And I like to follow your work and your updates anyway on LinkedIn and and online. And I'll certainly be tuning in to seeing um, what you're up to and what the outcome is for those um, you know really important cases that are coming up. So make sure you stay Absolutely. in touch with us here. And it'd be great to have you Definitely. on again at some point. And um, yeah, thank you so much for joining Thanks. me. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having me and uh, for listening to me and the viewers as well. Thank you so much. And um, if you have any questions or anything that you want uh, further advice on, or if you're unsure uh, or anything, you can contact me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Oh, that's so and I'll kind. be more than happy uh, to speak with you and uh and answer your questions to the best of my ability. Thank you so much. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? 
Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.